In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me, that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins and the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, Saint Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Right now it is time to speak quietly with Jesus and to really feel ourselves to be under his gaze and as a result of that gaze to grow in friendship and as a result of that friendship to ask him questions and allow ourselves now in this time of prayer to be questioned by him to renew our resolutions, reinvigor our desires to be with him, to regain our strength as sons and daughters of God the Father, and to start again and to leave this place here full of joy and optimism. So when you're on the way home, when you're on the bus, or you're back to your regular activities, you're, you're just like bubbling with joy and optimism. Because somehow, because of the result of this time of prayer with our Lord here, you sense a deeper friendship with Him. And as a result, an optimism, a, a joy. And all of this has to do with, with friendship with Jesus conviction of his gaze on us. And what is the essential feature of this gaze, of this friendship, of any friendship, you could say? One of the essential features of any friendship is that we have a closeness with the person that we are friends with, a proximity. I suppose it's possible to have relationships with somebody who's like way far away and you know people do this online and zoom and but I don't know okay maybe they can talk but probably a lot of those relationships end up floundering because we understand we need to be with the person we need to speak to them face to face not face to computer to face right? but face to face to listen to them to hear their real voice and especially to see their proximity. And this is what we can actually experience in the real presence of Jesus here in the tabernacle. And we want to think about this in these days as we are preparing for the Feast of Corpus Christi, about the real presence. Because He is right here. He is right here in front of us. But perhaps at times... We, we might feel like we're going to visit a friend in prison. I don't know if you have many friends in prison, but I can imagine, that's probably because I watch movies, but uh, you go into a small room and there's a pane of glass there, a very thick pane of glass, probably bulletproof, and uh, there's an old phone next to it, 
and you speak to the other person like, hi, how's it going? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. And you just hear this crackly voice on the other side and, and, a, and a spotty, spotty you know, pane of glass that has a lot of fingerprints on it. Maybe that's just the movies, but I suppose that's what it's like. I don't know. What do I know? I, so, but, but when we consider speaking to our Lord in the tabernacle, we don't just want to be kind of behind a plate of, of glass. Because we really want to enter into a deep conversation with Jesus. You, you see in movies, the, the two people, they're in love, they talk between this pane of glass. One is in an orange jumpsuit and the other one is you know, dressed normally and, and they're starting to talk and something's important. And meantime, there's a security guard. He says, okay, time's up, time's up. Okay, get, up, get on with it, let's go. You know, it's like, we're just getting into a conversation. No, time's up. Well, something like that has to be for us when we're talking with Jesus. We can't just say, oh, time's up. I've got to go. I've got to do uh, something else now. I've got to get on my phone. And, um, you know. We can ask ourselves now, really, what does the real presence really mean? What's it all about? How can I understand it? Because Christians have tried to understand this over the centuries. And that understanding of the real presence was like a slow progression, kind of like a slow burn in their hearts. And with time, it's as though the reality of the real presence became deeper and deeper. And with the experience of the sacraments and masses, people came to understand more deeply what, what it meant that that our Lord said, I will, never, I will never leave you. I will be with you until the end of the age. At first, people would celebrate Mass, and they realized they could keep the, the Blessed Sacrament, but they would usually put it in a quasi-tabernacle, but it would be kept in the sacristy in case somebody had to go, the priest had to go and give communion to somebody who was sick. But when the time, with time, they said, well, why don't we just not put him in the sacristy, but like put him in the church? so that people could pray to him in the church. And then more and more elaborate uh, designs were made for churches to allow for that. And then at one point, around the 13th century, came the solemnity of Corpus Christi, of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, which was first celebrated in, I believe it was the year 1246. And it was established by, by the bishop. His name was Bishop Robert de Thorpe. He was the bishop of Liège in Belgium. And he decided to institute this, this uh, solemnity, not on his own uh, initiative, but because of a mystic who spoke to him. Her name was uh, Juliana of Cormillion. I'm sure you've heard of her. I mean, she's very... I've never heard of her, honestly, but uh, but um, and but this was just a local feast, and the reason was because um, Saint Juliana of Cormillion, she lived there in Belgium in, in Liège, and from an early age, she had deep a deep devotion to the Eucharist, and um, 
she would pray and had these visions and one day she had a vision of the full moon you know you, you know when you look at the full moon sometimes you can see like this 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 large kind of beige disc with little spots and stuff right you can picture a large full moon at night and so she saw this large full moon and she was staring at it in her vision but then she saw one little dark spot right and she said well, what what is that dark spot on the moon it wasn't like a bird flying by it was just like a constant thing there and she heard a heavenly voice saying that the moon was the church and that the dark spot that she could see there was the one missing feast day and that was that there was no feast in honor of the body and blood of Christ so she said that's true there is no feast in the body so she went to the bishop and she said you got to institute a feast here because I saw this vision and it's the black spot and blah 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 so so the, the bishop said, okay, 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 you're a mystic. I guess i got to listen to you and whatever. So he established that feast. This was in 1246. And then a little bit later, it became a universal feast. And, um, and the story of the universal feast is equally uh, dramatic, let's say. In the, and this took place a few years later in the year, as I understand, 1263, there was a little little town and there was a church there its name was Saint Christina it was near the town of Orvieto in Italy and there was a German priest who was passing by there and he was a young priest his name was Peter of Prague well, it was actually Austrian I guess but anyway he was, he was passing through but during this time he was like seven years a priest he was kind of like you know green behind the ears as they say he didn't know much and he was ravaged by doubts about the real presence and um, he had been reading about these debates between theologians some of them kind of said well it's sort of real but it's symbolic it's mystical presence and others say no 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 it's real presence and all the vocabulary was getting him pretty confused it was a big debate that was going back and forth, which most people didn't listen to, but you know, he was like a he was a priest, so he read about these things, you know, in the in the local newspapers and stuff, and so and uh but he, he didn't see how how the host could actually be changed into the body and blood of Christ, since he looked the same and tasted the same. And so he he felt very uh, conflicted about this and he went to confession and the priest told him, Look, you're you're having doubts. You're clearly having lots of doubts. That's bad. You're losing faith. So, in penance, you will pray to St. Peter. Because St. Peter had doubts. Like, he had tons of doubts. And he even, you know, denied our Lord. So, go and pray to St. Peter. Because remember how St. Peter, like, when he was walking on the water, moving towards our Lord, well, then he started doubting and freaking out. And so, he started sinking. Well, our Lord said to him, man of little faith. So, that's why you have to pray to St. Peter. So, uh, okay, good, I'll pray to St. Peter. But he was kind of like, eh, whatever, I guess so. But uh, he was getting kind of very sort of lackadaisical and passive about this. And so a few days later, he celebrated Mass in this little church of St. Christina. And during the moment of consecration, 
again, he's tormented by these doubts. As he was doing the elevation, the host, the story is that the host began to bleed blood. And obviously he was quite startled by this. And the blood trickled into the corporal that was on the altar. And um, he, he got obviously you know, quite uh, shocked by this. And he folded up the, the, the host and the, and the blood and stuff. And he brought it to the, to the Pope, Pope Urban IV, who was in Orvieto at that time. And that Pope happened to be, well, the same Bishop of Liege, this guy, this Bishop... Um, Robert de Torte, and uh, same guy. He, but in the meantime, he'd been named Pope, right? So he brought it to him, and uh, well, Pope Urban IV was already convinced of the importance of the of the Corpus Christi, and so he instituted there uh, the Feast of Corpus Christi to make it universal for the entire church. And so that's that's why we have this feast, this solemnity. It's called the Miracle of of Balsena or sometimes called the miracle of Orvieto. In fact, uh, Raphael, a famous painter, in 1512 painted a, a beautiful fresco of Peter of Prague kneeling in front of Pope Urban IV before the altar. And this represents the moment in which Peter of Prague showed, showed the, the Pope this uh, bloody uh, corporal and uh, it's a beautiful scene. It's like over a doorway. In the, it's in the Vatican, right? If you ever go to the Stanza di Raffaele, it's amazing painting, amazing, amazing fresco. And there you see him kneeling. You see the Pope kneeling. And in the corner, you see the first time Swiss guards were ever painted. And uh, so if you ever get a chance to see that, you should see it. It's a beautiful painting. But, but the fact is that the Pope established this bowl incorporating the Corpus Christi celebration in the Universal Church. But not satisfied with that, he commissioned St. Thomas Aquinas. He asked him to compose some hymns and, and uh, you know, texts for the Mass of Corpus Christi. And that's where he wrote Pange Lingua, which we all know, the Tanto Mergo, oh, we all know that, the Panis Angelicus, we know that, and the O Salutaris Ostia. All those were written by uh, Thomas Aquinas. Beautiful and beloved hymns of the church that are still sung today in honor, of course, of the Blessed Eucharist. So you can imagine that this priest no longer had doubts. I mean, he was deeply converted. He loved the Eucharist. He grew in faith. But generations of Christians at this point now were also empowered in their faith with this with this miracle and uh, and these hymns have helped generations of Christians to deepen their understanding of the of the real presence and uh, I mean how many how many people have heard that hymn now or those hymns now maybe they're less commonly heard, but they have helped many, many people. And, and we should see how, how goes my faith in the real presence, the real presence, right? Like his presence is here with us in a unique way, hidden in that tabernacle, hidden in the host. 
And as you know, the COVID lockdowns led many to stay at home. And maybe for some people, it was good enough to watch the mass on the screen. And they thought, well, I can watch the mass on the screen. And well, as I have faith, I just have faith, whatever. And as you know, government officials here locked down churches, forced churches to be closed, but not entirely understanding the effect that it had on many people. Okay, closing churches are meant to protect people from COVID, but it, it, seems, it seems to suggest that everything we see in church, in Mass, is just transmitting us some ideas, you know, some readings and some homilies and something kind of theoretical. It's just like we're hearing ideas. So since we're always just hearing his ideas, we just might as well walk, watch it online. And it can, it can render our sense of the real presence kind of fragile. If we think that in some way it's okay just to watch it online. But thank God this is now coming to a halt. In fact, the bishop here of this diocese, uh, Cardinal Collins, has said that there, you know, there is no longer a dispensation from Sunday Mass, right? From the obligation to go to Sunday Mass. So you know, we're no longer dispensed. He wants people to go back to church, back to Mass in person, and to experience the real presence, which is the result of being in church. Naturally, if you're sick, you're dispensed. But not just if you're sick with COVID, also if you're sick with whatever else you have, you know. And, um, and so we should. Uh, Reflect now in our prayer, how do I experience this real presence? We know that while many tourists come to Orvieto, that town, they go to, to sample the wonderful culinary traditions, apparently, of that town. Apparently there's a labyrinth of caves and tunnels that were built by the Etruscans, and that's a big draw for many tourists and probably nice beautiful old buildings and churches but many Catholics now go to that cathedral to pay homage to the Eucharistic Lord and to this relic which is this bloody corporal which is apparently still there. In fact Pope Paul VI in 1964 visited this cathedral in um, in Orvieto, and apparently that was the first time a pope had ever flown on a helicopter. You know, he went there by helicopter, and it was pretty cool. But what was cool was that he was going to visit this Eucharistic miracle. And uh, he said there that the Eucharist is a great and inexhaustible mystery. And he was referring to the real presence there. Yet, however great this miracle of Bolsano or Vieto, whoever you want to call it, however great it might be, the fact that a host like that should suddenly bleed, eh, it is, is a great miracle, I suppose, yes. What exactly, what kind of blood this is, you know, I don't know. But, but it is really nothing compared to the real presence that is Christ's living body and blood, his divinity, his living and risen presence there in the host. I mean, that's the greatest miracle of all. 
And that's what should draw us to the tabernacle. What, you know, like if people could understand the miracle that it was there, they would go like they go to that cathedral in in uh, Orvieto. That's why we say that the the institution of the Eucharist is really the central mystery of our faith, and it really has to fill us with true wonder. This is what Pope Benedict said: the Eucharist has to fill us with wonder. That is the wonder that the Lord wanted to stay with us in such a real way in the Paschal mystery. The, those are the words that the that the disciples of Emmaus said: "Stay with us, Lord." stay with us they'd been walking from Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus and he spoke to them on the road and explained all the meanings of the Old Testament references to him and their hearts were burning they were full of fascination and wonder and they said we can't imagine you now leaving us I mean he was just a traveler he was just like a pilgrim they didn't exactly know who he was exactly but they immediately felt uh, the warmth of his words and his gestures and everything wonderful that he was saying. It wasn't just the theory of what he was saying. You know, the, the quotes from the Old Testament or from the prophets. Uh, it was the fact that he was close to them. I like, always like to imagine what it would have been like. I don't think he was a ghost. He wasn't like a, I don't know, a hologram there walking with them like in Star Wars. No, he was, he was really there. And this, as they say, it, it, they felt like their hearts were burning. And they really reflected the truth of those words that our Lord had said, and surely I'm with you always until the very end of the age. He was there with the disciples of Emmaus in that miraculous walk, but then when they sat down, when he broke the bread, he, he vanished from their sight. But he kept being present there in the host. And no doubt they, they received communion and they had this profound and deep sense of his presence. They came rushing home. They had a deep sense of responsibility to tell the apostles, to tell Peter and the other holy women. So we can ask ourselves... How effective is my faith in the real presence? Maybe we can ask our Lord now to do to us what Pope John Paul II said in his encyclical Ecclesia de Eucharistia. He expressed the desire, he said, to rekindle our wonder at the Eucharist, the source and summit of Christian life, to rekindle it to reawaken it. Maybe it's gone a little bit too humdrum or too staid or too passive. And uh, there's got to be a way in which this can be truly rekindled, like a fire that you blow on the embers and you, 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 know, you bring the fire back, even though it seemed like it was going out. When Pope Benedict went to Cologne, World Youth Day in 2005, he was still a relatively new pope. He'd only recently been elected and he went to those large, vast crowds of young people. And he decided there in Cologne to speak about the Eucharist and the transformation of the bread into the body and blood of Christ. 
and talking about the Last Supper, he said, he asked the crowd, you know, what is happening? How could Jesus distribute his body and his blood? And he says, by, by making the bread into his body and the wine into his blood, he says, he anticipates his death. He accepts it in his heart and he transforms it into an action of love. What on the outside is simply brutal violence, the, the crucifixion, from within becomes an act of total self-giving love. This is the substantial transformation which was accomplished at the Last Supper and was destined to set in motion a series of transformations leading ultimately to the transformation of the world when God will be all in all. This is a profound uh, statement that he's making here about the real presence. He said, In their hearts, people always and everywhere have somehow expected a change, a transformation of the world. Here now is the central act of transformation that alone can truly renew the world. Violence is transformed into love. Death into life. It's, it's a, and he says, well, he says, this act transmutes death into love. Death as such is already conquered from within. The resurrection is already present in it. Death is, so to speak, mortally wounded so that it can no longer have the last word. And he uses that image of nuclear fission. He says, to use an image well known to us today is like inducing nuclear, fi nuclear fission in the very heart of being. The victory of love over hatred, the victory of love over death. It's, a, it's an explosion, he says, of the good conquering evil. And that can trigger all kinds of transformations. And, you know, that's what happens in nuclear fission. The, you know, it's a splitting apart of heavy atoms, like, like uranium, into smaller atoms, like iodine or cesium or strontium. And, uh, and, it, and it brings about a deep actual transformation of the actual substance of what it is. So let us uh, see how our faith is in the real presence and let's really pray to Jesus, not as though he were here, but, but truly as he is here, not faking it. And he is there. That's why we keep him in this beautiful tabernacle. He's worthy, he's worthy of that. The inside is super clean. The inside has nice decorations. We can't do things cheaply for you, Lord. Let us ask this so that the Feast of Corpus Christi, which will be coming in a few weeks now, you know, really be at the heart of our own transformation. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations you've communicated to me in this meditation. I ask you how to put them into effect my Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me.